This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we're relaunching the podcast to talk all things Trump with a national reporter who covers, among other things, Trump's legal troubles. Rebecca Beitch is the Hill's national security and legal affairs reporter, where her beat spans immigration, the intelligence community, and high-stakes legal battles, including investigations concerning, you guessed it, the former president. Welcome and happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Well, let's get right to it. Let's start passing judgment. So I want to start with there are four criminal cases pending against the former president. There's one civil case pending against the president. And I want to actually take these in kind of reverse order of when they were filed. So the former president is facing four criminal indictments, as I said, Two are in state cases. Two involve federal cases. There's the Georgia case dealing with efforts to overturn the 2020 election. There's a federal case dealing with efforts to overturn the 2020 election. There's a federal case dealing with the unlawful retention of government documents related to Mar-a-Lago. And then there's the New York case dealing with hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. So, Rebecca, let's start with the Georgia case that, again, involves efforts to overturn the election. I've heard a lot about this case. I've been asked about this case dealing with RICO. So can you tell us briefly, what is RICO? What is racketeering? Why are we talking about it here? Yeah, well, so in Georgia, their RICO law is a little bit broader. broader. And of course, I think a lot of people, they hear RICO, they're used to kind of associating that with, you know, mob activity Um, going after, you know, mafias. But Georgia's law actually allows you to go after any sort of criminal enterprise. And so the argument that you're seeing here from Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is that Trump, along with his 18 co-conspirators here, were all part of this broader enterprise seeking to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. So Rico, we typically think about either mob activity or even street gangs. And It's broader in Georgia because it can sweep in activities from other states and or more is included in the definition of like what falls within RICO. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, So what it allows is you to point to activities that would in this case be outside of Willis's jurisdiction of Fulton County to kind of sweep in predicate crimes that may have occurred elsewhere. And that's how you get at some of the... um, stuff that would have been happening more in D.C., uh, as well as other parts of Georgia, which kind of could include the call with Secretary of State Raffensperger, some of the computer trespass charges that are stemming out of Coffee County. So basically, you need to show there's a criminal enterprise. I'm using that term because I think it would be familiar to people. And that the actions involved in that criminal enterprise don't all have to have happened within Georgia. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, like, what exactly is the criminal plan that they are alleged to have undertaken? Is it try and overturn the election? 
And what are some steps that were taken to try and effectuate that? Oh, my gosh. So it's actually kind of just about everything that happened. So in the indictment, she lays out 161 acts that kind of contribute to this to these RICO charges. And it's almost like a timeline for everything that happened in the state. Um, You know, it goes through a lot of the um, meetings that Trump's legal team would have had with different legislators. It includes all of the effort to create these false electors and have meetings with them to, you know, submit these fake election certificates saying that Trump had won the state. It includes um, all of the calls that Trump and also his then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, would have made to different officials kind of on those two different points. Um, And then another thing that I think is really interesting is it actually pays considerable attention to the efforts to target two different election workers and spread false claims about them. And it really digs into the plot, um, kind of great, basically contributing to conspiracy theories about these two women and alleging that they had somehow manipulated ballots, even though those claims were completely false. And were those the two workers that testified at the January 6th House Select Committee hearings where we heard very emotional testimony about how being targeted had actually affected their lives and their mental health? Yes, exactly. So Shay Moss is the daughter and the mother-daughter duo. Her mother is Ruby Freeman, and that's who is more specifically named um, in this Georgia indictment. But Shay Moss was the one who appeared before the January 6th committee and just kind of recounting how their lives were completely turned upside down, um, how they had to flee their homes, how they weren't safe there. Uh, And then some of the details that we're seeing focused on more in the Georgia indictment is this kind of this other network of people involved in that, you know, would be Kanye West's, you know, former publicist who's also indicted in this case, who, you know, shows up at a police department to speak with Freeman about, you know, things they're doing to make her safe, but which the district attorney alleges were, you know, part of a broader effort to influence her comments about, you know, what was happening in Georgia with the election. There's so many people who feel, it feels to me that there's so many people who are swept into this particular indictment There are 19 defendants, and that really helped me understand at least why RICO is this important tool and what the specific allegations are that try to support that RICO claim. Um, Let's talk about the fact that there are 19 defendants, because this seems to me to be playing into when and how this case is going to be heard. And there strikes me as kind of two big scheduling questions. First, there's the who's going to go first in terms of this issue of a speedy trial and who's going to go first in state court. And then there's the who might not even be tried in state court, who might be tried in federal court. So let's take each of those in turn. Let's start with this idea that the case might be bifurcated in state court. It might stay in state court, but some defendants are going to go first. There's already one defendant who said, I want to go, I want to go in October, and the judge said, okay. And there's some other defendants who are basically standing in line to go early. Can you talk to us a little bit about who are they and why do we think that they want to go very quickly when the former president wants to delay this as long as possible. Yeah. So the first person out of the gate saying that they wanted a speedy trial, that was Kenneth Chesbrough. 
And he would be the one in this case that, um, you know, crafted the false electors memo, sort of outlining the way that they could create these um, certificates claiming that Trump won each state and then, you know, submit that on January 6th and have Vice President Mike Pence, you know, certify those results instead. And so his his motion to do so resulted in a very strong response from Willis, who was sort of like, oh, OK, you want to be tried, you know, in the next couple months. How's October? Uh, and she actually suggested doing that for every single defendant in the case. Um, you know, Trump at that point jumped in, made it very clear that he uh, <laughs> would be opposed to such a motion and would seek to then sever his case from Chesbro. Um, since that's happened, we've also seen Sidney Powell, one of um, Trump's former attorneys, you know, on the different cases that he filed challenging election results. She also jumped in asking for a speedier trial. And what do we think accounts for this? I mean, I can think of some ideas, which is just distance from the former president, right? I don't want to be charged anywhere near him in time or space. Uh, it could be, I don't want to keep paying my lawyers for that many months. Like this could drag on for years. There's some questions I have about whether or not in terms of the evidence that would be presented against them, whether or not it might be advantageous for them to go early because maybe they can say, sorry, attorney-client privilege. Are those the things that you think are going on? And is there anything else that we're missing in terms of why is it the lawyers who are standing in line saying, take me, take me? You know, I'm not totally sure. And I've been wondering about that too, because in some ways it seems like a lot of the benefit would be to the uh, defendants who don't do that, who sort of have the benefit of seeing how these earlier cases play out and getting a sense of what the arguments are going to be, what the evidence is going to be. Um, and so I think I've seen, you know, more people kind of chiming in to talk about how this would really benefit the other 17 defendants who at this point have not pushed for that. Um, and you still have Willis, who is, you know, seeking to clarify the timelines for these other defendants now that um, Chesbro has gotten an earlier trial date. This is an interesting one for me because it seems like it forces the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, to put on her case, quote unquote, early. Now, let's remember, she's been looking at this for two and a half years. She had a special grand jury. She had a regular grand jury. And so this case, in a lot of ways, she's worked up more than, I think, a typical case. Um, I know there's some legal chatter about whether or not, even though Georgia doesn't have a kind of true advice of counsel defense, whether or not there's some evidentiary benefit to the to the attorneys of the former president saying, let me go first, I'll invoke attorney-client privilege, then much later the former president might try to basically throw me under the bus and say, I'm breaking attorney-client privilege, the attorneys gave me terrible advice. Um, those are questions that I have in terms of whether or not that's motivating them and um, they would be the ones who would be able to answer that. Because again, I know in Georgia, they don't have a typical advice of counsel defense. But to me, it's just interesting that the people raising their hands saying, let me go, that they are the ones who are the attorneys who might be able to invoke attorney-client privilege. So, so that's where that case is in terms of the timing of the state cases. Some people are saying, 
how about trying this in federal court? Now, who are the people saying, let's remove this case to federal court? And what's the benefit? Well, can I actually circle back to something you said about the attorneys? Yes. Because um, to your point, one of the things that I think is interesting about the way that the federal January 6th indictment is structured is they do spend a lot of time on, you know, what seems to be preparing for an advice of counsel defense of, you know, they they break down the false statements of these attorneys, a lot of whom are still like, you know, not yet indicted co-conspirators in that federal case. Um, but they really break down just kind of the full picture of the legal advice that Trump was given. And that federal indictment spends a lot of time focusing on all of the attorneys that <laughs> gave Trump different advice, advised him not to pursue this, were advising him that, you know, these these claims were false, that this wasn't going to change the outcome, that none of these were viable paths. So, sorry, you said in the federal case, right? Yes, in the federal indictment from Jack Smith, yeah. Yes, so I think when it comes to, and I want to get to that federal case, but when it comes to there's the federal case about the election, there's the state case about the election, my understanding is that the federal case, the former president is going to bring up an advice of counsel defense, whereas in the state case in Georgia, Georgia's law doesn't really read like it allows that. So there would be a lot of time spent in the federal case saying, advice of counsel defense. Now, if the Georgia case, if part of it is tried in federal court, you are still using state laws. And that's part of the reason why, if the former president is convicted in Georgia, um, he could not pardon himself because he would have been convicted for state crimes. Did that respond to at all what you were saying? Yes, I just was kind of just thinking about, you know, to the extent that the attorneys in Georgia are looking to, you know, kind of make that case there. There's certainly this kind of like broader pool of evidence suggesting that there was uh, certainly legal advice given to the contrary. Yeah, clearly in the federal case, I think we're going to hear the former president saying, yeah, the attorneys told me so. And so let's talk, let's stay with the Georgia case. Let's finish it up. There was just a hearing very recently where the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said this case should be removed to federal court. What's his argument and what are other people saying as to why this case should be in federal court? Yeah, so his argument is that he was, you know, this is this should be a federal case because he was acting, you know, in his federal capacity at the time as Trump's chief of staff, he's really characterized that, you know, everything he did, uh, one of the lines in his uh, first brief was like, these are not crimes per se, you know, like arranging phone calls, arranging meetings, like really making an effort to cast this as just, you know, standard kind of part of the job description for him. Um, and his his ultimate argument in seeking to have this case removed to federal court is that he sh he should be immune from being prosecuted, that he feels that this you know, state cases overstepping and trying to, uh, you know, prosecute him for things that were simply part of his his job as a federal figure, federal official. And he actually took the stand in that hearing, which surprised a lot of people. My understanding is that if he is, in fact, correct, that he might actually have violated the Hatch Act. So in the sense of the Hatch Act says, 
you cannot, as a federal employee, engage in political behavior. And what it looks like he's doing is engaging in political behavior by trying to overturn the 2020 election. So is there this kind of weird overlap between the Hatch Act, a potential violation that he's walking himself into, and this request for removal? Oh, man, that's really interesting. This is actually a story I wrote uh, a long, long time ago before this, you know, investigation really materialized to the extent that we've seen today, but just kind of exploring the way that, you know, various Trump officials, including Meadows, could be prosecuted under, you know, a criminal sister statute to the Hatch Act, because a lot of this, you know, would constitute electioneering. But, um, you know, to your point about the extent that this, you know, could trigger that for him. There's just a lot about the Hatch Act that's just pretty toothless. So even if that did pop up, there just really isn't a good way to reprimand, you know, former federal officials for that kind of behavior. That makes total sense. So what Mark Meadows and other people are saying is take me to federal court because I'm going to have a better jury because uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her team will basically be kind of off their game in the sense that they won't be in state court where they're typically uh, where they typically practice because she is a district attorney. Um, and what Mark Meadows is arguing is everything I did, I did as chief of staff. And I think the counter argument is in the job description for being chief of staff, it doesn't include allegedly trying to overturn the election. And we're waiting for a decision from a federal judge there. Only because we have other cases to talk about, I think we should probably move on to the federal case dealing with the 2020 election also. That was a case of the two cases brought by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. He's overseeing those two federal cases. That's one of them. Is this federal case, does it feel largely duplicative of the Georgia case? Does it tread on some of the same ground for you? Or does it feel like even though they both deal with overturning the election, they're really distinct? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, certainly there's a lot of ways that they overlap. And actually, when um, Willis's case dropped, one of the first things that I was kind of chewing on is like, what does this mean for, you know, the five people that are at the intersection of, you know, these cases, you know, taking Trump out of that pool for a second. Um, but, you know, Willis did go ahead and, you know, indict you know everybody as part of this broader rico conspiracy and in the federal january 6th case they haven't done that yet they've in a lot of ways presented a much more streamlined case um they're pretty limited in the number of charges they brought against trump and then they've held back on bringing charges against any of these other people they list as co-conspirators in that case and I think one of the things that I'm chewing on is, you know, just kind of like, how long will that be the ca case? Does this mean that they're not indicting these people? They haven't said they're unindicted co-conspirators. So that's kind of looming still. And I'm eager to see where that goes and if it's something that they just punt until uh, after Trump's trial kicks off on March 4th of next year. So do we think that you just kind of gave away the ending of my next question, which is there was, which is great, right? There was just a hearing about when that case is going to go forward. And Judge Chutkin, who is overseeing that case, said March 4th of 2024. Um, really briefly, the prosecution had asked for January 2024. So it's about 
eight weeks after what they requested, the defense had asked for 2026. So it's about two years earlier than what they requested. I'm handing that as a win to the prosecution, just looking at um, what she decided. And my understanding of, of course, because it's federal court and there aren't cameras in the courtroom, my understanding of following along is that the judge essentially was not buying what the Trump defense team was selling, that they were saying, well, there's so many documents that we need two years. And she said, yeah, but there's ways to electronically go through those documents. And they said, well, you know, there, there are all these reasons why we're going to bring complicated motions. We're going to bring motions on executive privilege. We're going to bring motions on selective prosecution. And the prosecution and the judge said, okay, bring those motions. But we've already had certain motions on executive privilege. It's not the first time that a judge is going to look at that. Um, and essentially, go ahead and bring those complicated motions, but we're moving forward. And the idea is we're moving forward, I read it as, because there's a public interest in resolution, because the judge is worried about social media posts poisoning a jury pool. And what else do you think weighed in the judge's mind here? Yeah, so I do think that's a good recap. Um, I did sit in for that one, and it was kind of interesting because, you know, she laid out from the beginning, like, all right, this side has asked for this, this side has asked for this. No one's getting what they want. So it's like you kind of, like, get into this hearing thinking, like, okay, we're going to, like, split the difference a little bit. Um, but the longer that the arguments went on, uh, you're right, she really wasn't buying any of these arguments from the Trump team. And when those briefs were initially filed, I I thought they were like a, a little odd in the sense that they seemed maybe more geared towards sort of a public argument of just kind of suggesting it's going to take so long to read this. One of the graphics in the brief was just, you know, stacking all of the, you know, pages and pages they would have to read and kind of comparing it to the Washington Monument. Um, but as soon as they're in a courtroom, uh, Judge Chutkin is basically like, no one reads this page by page. Everyone in this room knows no one reads discovery page by page like a lot of this is done electronically you initially do a search you um you know weed things down a little bit and you know you also have prosecutors in this case who are saying like yes this sounds like a lot of documents but you know the trump team actually created a lot of the evidence in this case a lot of it is public statements he's made a lot of these you know the information in this case is already out there so ultimately, yeah, you saw uh, the judge steer much more closely to the original date that uh, prosecutors suggested. So this is one of the big differences, other than the fact, of course, that there's different law at issue, there's different defendants at issue. But this is one of the big differences between the federal case and the state case, which is we have to rely on you because you were in the room for the federal case. The state case is going to be televised. What did it feel like in the room? Like, what could we not understand from just reading a transcript man i uh i think it's it's a challenging environment for reporters too uh because keep in mind we're not allowed to record anything in there either so all of our notes are you know taken by hand if you're in the room no electronics uh and if you're in one of the media rooms or there's a live stream uh, your only, you know, record as you're trying to write everything up minutes after uh, the end of a hearing is just your own handwritten notes. And, um, you know, I do think there just are going to be gaps that result from that. You're going you're gonna to see a lot of, you know, arguments from both sides that are paraphrased rather than exact quotes. And it just it is it is a difference from getting to to watch it 
unroll. And I do think that that can be a pretty big disservice to the public as they're trying to understand these cases. Like a lot more people are going to read an article than read a transcript, which would be, you know, a much fuller accounting of what happened. But it means we're really depending on you to be in the room and to be telling us what's happening in these monumental cases. Um, another federal case where we also will be depending on you, where we're not going to have cameras in the courtroom, it's the case dealing with the unlawful retention of documents. And this is the so-called Mar-a-Lago case. Um, so we're moving out of the two 2020 election cases. We're moving into Mar-a-Lago. Well, not physically, but we're moving figuratively. And can you remind us just briefly, I feel like in a weird way, this almost fell off the radar because we've been spending so much time lately thinking about Georgia and thinking about that federal case. What are the basic allegations in that Mar-a-Lago case? Uh, yes, even if this has fallen to the back burner a little bit, these are some pretty explosive allegations as well. Like, let's keep in mind the Mar-a-Lago case is at its heart. You know, this is violation of the Espionage Act or the charges that are being leveled here um, for taking all of these documents. And of course, they recovered more than 300 documents with classified markings, but there's just a few more than 30 that they're choosing to bring um, charges on based in this case. And then there's also several other charges related to obstruction of justice, um, stemming from Trump's, you know, resistance to returning these records despite being asked multiple times. And in a superseding indictment we saw earlier this summer, um, that effort also included Trump's ballot and then a property manager at Mar-a-Lago who were involved in both um, moving boxes and now have been alleged to have tried to aid Trump in deleting security footage of all of, you know, that captured all of those movements. So this case, that's such a great kind of setting the table of that case, because to me, it's exactly what you said, which is it's in part about the former president allegedly taking documents that belong to us, not him, us, the people, their government documents, taking them to his private residence, storing them in a way that they shouldn't be stored. But it's also that refusal to give them back, right? It's the federal government and different agencies saying, give it back, give it back, give it back. He doesn't do it. They execute a search warrant. The FBI gets a search warrant. They execute the search warrant. They find more documents. And in addition to that, there are these allegations that Trump employees are trying to thwart the FBI, that they're trying to hide boxes, and then hide the footage of hiding the boxes. And that, to me, is why this case is all about it's the cover-up, right? If the former president, in my view, had said, sorry, I took that stuff, I don't think you and I are talking about this case. Uh, we're not, because willful retention is the key the key phrase, right? Um, and when you talk about, you know, the cover-up here and the obstruction charges, those also just really help reinforce the the other charges at play here, which is that he retained these, willfully retained these, despite multiple opportunities to give them back. And in my summary, I kind of also left off, you know, he was also concealing some of this from his own attorney, you know, leading his attorney to believe that, you know, he had returned all the documents, despite knowing that there were still some remaining on the property. That's such a good reminder because it's so hard to keep track of all of the allegations, which in isolation for any other president, I think we'd be talking about for months. But in this case, it's like, oh, right, remind me how he allegedly lied to his attorney. 
Um, which is why I think what you have to do is really difficult. So that case is assigned in Florida to Judge Eileen Cannon. She, of course, was appointed by the former president and also in kind of an earlier iteration of this case dealing with a special master, made a ruling that, in my view, was not grounded in the law. It was ultimately overturned by a conservative court of appeals um, made up, I believe, of two of the former president's appointees who said, no, Judge Cannon erred. So we're watching that case, of course, closely and following how Judge Cannon uh, is ruling on those initial motions, which, as we know, are very important. Now, um, this is a federal case, so the former president could, if he's reelected, either ask his attorney general to drop the case or kind of pre-pardon himself. Uh, we haven't tested that. I say that a lot when it comes to a former president. We haven't tested that constitutionally, if you can self-pardon. Um, but that is one thing that, of course, people are looking to. Now, let's end our tour of criminal cases by talking about the one that I think very deservedly gets the least amount of attention, but which the former president could not pardon himself for because we're going back to state court we're going to this case. It was actually the first indictment. And it was the indictment that dealt with the idea that the former president indirectly paid adult film star Stormy Daniels, that he paid her right before the 2016 election, not to talk about her allegations that they had a affair. And can you help us understand, this is a question I got a lot, why is a hush money payment potentially illegal. Like, can't I pay somebody not to talk? That's a good point. Hush money payments are not illegal. The question is, do you have to disclose them if those hush money payments are therefore designed to help boost your election prospects? Um, and I think this could be tricky. Certainly, Trump's Trump world has kind of argued, you know, there are reasons other than an election that you might want to, you know, make a hush money payment uh, just to protect his privacy, um, you know, to keep this information from his wife. Um, and I also want to be clear, they've denied those allegations from Stormy Daniels, but their overarching point is, it, you know, there would be reasons to want to conceal this that would have nothing to do with an election. So, Rebecca, what I hear you saying, and I totally agree, is that the difference here is that we're talking about a candidate for federal office, and we're talking about payments, if you look at the timing of the payments and maybe the why of the payments, there's the allegation here that the payments are made to help the election, to help candidate Trump, not individual Donald Trump. And that that's what potentially kicks this over into illegal territory. And it's kind of a complicated case in the sense that it's based on state record keeping um, but it's potentially kicked up to a felony based on, as we discussed, these potential violations of, we think, federal law, because we're talking about a federal candidate. And if these payments were made essentially to help out candidate Trump in furtherance of getting him elected, then they are contributions that go way over the limit and they're not disclosed. And that's kind of the hook to get this record-keeping case to be bounced up from a misdemeanor to a felony. Um, yes. Well, and let's also remember, you know, these charges aren't being brought on the, like, specific 
payments that were made to Stormy Daniels, they're looking at, um, you know, the Trump organization's record keeping in terms of how it couched these payments to Trump's fixer at the time, Michael Cohen. Um, and in those records, they are cast as, you know, for legal services, attorney fees and, you know, not labeled as hush money for Stormy Daniels. Right. That is a really good reminder. Um, Rebecca, I think we did it. I think we did all the criminal cases. We will update people later on the civil case dealing with E. Jean Carroll. I think that's too much to ask of you, our listeners, to then suddenly say, and now let's hop into defamation world. Rebecca, did you ever think like, yes, this will be my beat when I grow up. It will be following in part. You do a lot of things, but in part following the many indictments against a former president of the United States? Uh, you know, I got into this because I covered the January 6th hearing. So it's been interesting to stick with that as it moves from Congress over to the court system. I'm going to assume that the word interesting is doing a lot of work there. Rebecca Beich of The Hill, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for passing judgment. I want to thank our listeners. This is our relaunch episode. You can find passing judgment everywhere, whether you want to or not. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs>